Welcome to Office Hours with John Gardner. The John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education strives to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is a voice some of you have gotten accustomed to hearing. Uh, this is John Gardner, and this is uh, my latest office hours. And just like uh, you do or have done with your students or your former professors, uh, we're going to have a conversation with a gentleman who has agreed voluntarily, I certainly can't coerce him, to uh, visit my, my office. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Rolandus Rice, who is the chief operating officer of one of America's uh, really, truly historic places, Tuskegee University in Alabama. And uh, he uh, is also a, a civil rights historian. And I want to tell you how I, I met him. I have an esteemed uh, colleague who's a friend of mine, a little North Carolina town where I live, uh, Dr. Dan Carter, who is one of the uh, most uh, famous, distinguished living historians of the U.S. civil rights movement, who's the definitive biographer of uh, former Alabama governor George Wallace. And recently, um, in a conversation I asked about who was really up and coming to inherit the mantle of civil rights historians, Dr. Carter told me about a Dr. Rice and that I really needed to meet him. And so that's what I've been able to do. And Dr. Rice is the author of a hot off the press, the University of South Carolina Press, biography of the civil rights leader, Hosea Williams. Um, but uh, our guest today is also a, uh, a campus leader who not only is a scholar, he actually works with students and has a long history with students. And so I'd like to invite him to give you a, a brief overview of his career, and then I will ask him some uh, respectful questions. So, Dr. Rice, is an overview, what would you like people to know about your career as what I'm calling a higher education innovator? Take it away. Well, first of all, let me thank you and the inimitable Dr. Dan Carter for even allowing me into your space. Uh, I have not held office hours in some time, so I'm really honored to be here uh, in your office hours. Um, uh, PhD from Auburn University. I studied under Dr. Dan Carter's son, Dr. David Carter, who is not only my dissertation advisor, uh, but also a friend. And with the Carters, there is no such thing as a former student. And, <laughs> and so I embraced that same approach with, with my students. Um, after finishing at Auburn, what does, that mean? what does that mean? There's no such thing as a former student. That from the moment a student sits into your class from the first day. Um, it is our job to be with them through the workforce and through retirement. And so um, many times when a student graduates, um, they're no longer students. But I know with Dr. David Carter, um, I call him today and I have a question about uh, whether a historiographical question or a teaching question or an academic affairs type of question. And so I have access and that access piece is what is so critical in our spaces because when students do not have access, um, they make calculations sometimes that are, are not in their best interest. And so the more or the longer a faculty member or an administrator can be accessible, um, then it takes away this thought of, okay, you graduated, you, you were someone else now. 
um, but you are still in the classroom. Um, you can still have the proverbial office hours. And I think that is so important um, at HBCUs and certainly schools like Auburn. Now, I, many of my listeners know this, but I want you to explain it. What is an HBCU? An HBCU is an acronym for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Um, those schools that were designated in the 1960s um, during the Johnson administration who have a historical background in teaching and transforming um, students of African descent. And, and many of these schools were founded in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. Um, Tuskegee was started in 1881. Other schools were founded in 1865, 1867. Um, and so many of these schools that number now around 102 uh, are still vibrant. Many, some are having some struggles um, as many of them are private institutions. And so that are, are reliant solely on tuition and grants. So I hope that answers your question, sir. It does. And I, I don't want to rush this, but because I know you got a phone appointment, ladies and gentlemen, coming up with the United States senator. Uh, I wonder what that's about, but we're not asking him that. Uh, uh, I want to make sure you all heard Dr. Rice say that without the kind of access that he's describing through a metaphorical office hours, students often make decisions that are not in their best interests. You know, you've you have greatly expanded in that observation the concept of access, because historically that simply meant after the Higher Education Act of 65 and the Civil Rights Act of 64, just letting them in the door, right? Like right. we've let everybody else in the door. And after that, it's sink or swim. But that's of course not what you mean at all. Now, I want to ask you. Uh, to do what uh, I'm going to put this in a historical metaphor, because like you, I, well, not like you, I am a recovering former historian. And I remember <laughs> what happened to uh, Martin Luther, who was on the way home from Christmas vacation, I think, or something like that from uh, Wittenberg University. And he was caught in a terrible thunderstorm and he was struck to the ground by lightning. And he had an epiphany, which mm. transformed him and the history of Europe and the world, modern world since then. Mm. And I think you are uh, your own version of Martin Luther. Dr. Rice, I think you had an epiphany. You were not struck by lightning, but you were struck by something. And what I'm getting at here, you had um, a transformative experience, as I understand it, that made you decide to be a student success leader in higher education. What happened to you to start you on this journey? Well, I tell you, I, I did not get a chance to tackle anything on the door of a church. Yeah. Um, but no, 95 theses on a cathedral. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, in 20, 2002, um, my girlfriend at the time, whom, whom I loved very much, uh, she learned that I was being dishonest about my enrollment in a community college. Um, she found out that I, I had not completed high school. And she was a student at Georgia State University at the time. And so she dumped me and everybody knew that I was faking the funk, as my brother says, about not being enrolled. Faking the what? Faking the funk. Um, <laughs> not, not really being honest. With F -E -F, faking the funk. <laughs> faking the funk. Faking the funk. And um, my car was repossessed and my mother kicked me out of the house. Um, the same weekend, which was, again, I think the lowest moment of my life. And so um, I had to quickly figure out a way out of out of that hole. So I 
call the community college and see what would it take for me to study for the GED. And I went to a few classes and realized that I, I could really do this. I, I could really get my GED certificate and get a job just where I could make a living wage. But then I realized that I think I'm really smart. And I say that as humbly and respectfully as I know how, because I had been told for so long that I was not smart, that I was not intelligent, that I would not amount who, to who, much. Who told, who told you that? Um, folks in the school system, um, some of my teachers. Um, and, and I think it was unfair. It was unmerited. And so a lot of that was me trying to show people, you know, I can do what you said I couldn't do. But during that, those metaphorical moments, um, I began to understand and interpret the languages of the lost and left behind because I was riding the martyr bus with them. I was in the classes with them so I could have an appreciation for their for their struggles. And a lot of those students who were with me um, were grappling with a psychology of hopelessness and helplessness, and it permeated their very being. And so it was those experiences that I think have been most informative for me in developing approaches to ensuring that students um, matriculate and graduate um, in our walls. Um, it was not the, the PhD experience per se, or the master's degree experience per se, or the baccalaureate degree per se. It was that pruning ground or the grooming ground rather when I was working for the GED. And Many of our students have some of the same issues that I had, whereas most faculty, they were always the smartest in their classes. They made, uh, many of them made honor roll from kindergarten through graduation and on dean's list every semester in school. I was not that student. So there is sometimes a disconnect with the high achieving faculty versus somebody like me with a high school dropout and a GED. So I have a very different approach of mentoring them and giving them access and making them feel a sense of belonging that other faculty um, may not have the context to do. And so those are some of, that's what really grounded me in my approach to student success. Um, you used a phrase that was so powerful. I'm going to remember this for a long time. You talked about, quote, riding on the martyr bus riding on the martyr bus and here you are you're what 90 miles from montgomery where the famous boy, uh, montgomery bus boycott was held you're giving me a new sense of the power of bus hmm. um and uh so and, and ladies and gentlemen if you could see what i see dr rice is sitting in an office that looks like a museum to the history of the united states since reconstruction and the civil rights movement so um this martyr bus uh just give us expand on that slightly please so the martyr bus it is it is the public transportation system in Atlanta. And MARTA, I think, stands for Metro Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority. Oh, you said MARTA. I thought you said MARTER oh. for a cause. Okay. I, I apologize uh, for, for, my, for my grammar and syntax. Well, I like my misperception better. No, it's, so, it's profound. It is profound. So I need to find a way to incorporate that in some of my talks moving forward. Well, your students uh, that you were talking about, they would have, in effect, martyred themselves if they hadn't changed their self-concept, correctly? 
No, absolutely. Um, and, and many times our students cannot be what they cannot see. Um, and many times students don't know that they have something to lose. But when one knows that they have something to lose, they make very different calculations and decisions. Um, for example, if one knows that you have a mortgage payment, um, you're not just going to quit your job without having something lined up. Many responsible people would not do that. Um, but if I do not have a mortgage payment, if I do not have a responsibility, I'm more inclined to make a decision in the moment versus waiting um, to be more responsible. And, and so for us, um, our jobs is to transform that moment into momentum. Um, and so whatever moment they, they're in, when they're feeling nostalgic and they're thinking about their future, we want to turn that into something long term. And I think that's one thing that we can do. Oh, one thing I have done uh, to keep students engaged in the uh, in the academic process. I have no doubt. So we're going to talk about a martyr bus and we're inviting our listeners to think about how they could work with students or others to see that to be what they cannot see and to transform the moment to momentum. We heard you. We heard you. Now, you are the chief academic chief operational officer at what you explained to us a few minutes ago was a historically black college and university, which most Americans probably know because of the fame of the, the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II. Some people in America, more and more all the time, are learning about that there's some kind of secret sauce in the HBCU that uh, <laughs> it's possible for Black Americans to graduate at higher rates than they would from predominantly white institutions. Would you please explain to our audience what of those secret elements that you'd be willing to reveal? What, do you, what are you doing for these students? You. Well, to... To, to borrow a bit from uh, from Augustus, he said that he found Rome brick and made it marble. Um, HBCUs find students brick and make them marble um, because you learn so much from every experience on the campus, not just in the classroom, but the, the lady in the lunchroom who gives you uh, some knowledge about managing your money so that you can eat or you learn about the people um, who are mowing the lawn or you mow, you're learning from people who are are sweeping the halls. They may not have PhDs in an academic discipline, but they have PhDs in life. And, and for so many of us, although there are some faculty and staff who were uh, geniuses all of their lives, um, there are some who, who were not. And so this whole notion of holistic student development, um, HBCUs really embrace students, wrap our arms around them, place the crown of scholarship high above their heads so that one day they will grow tall enough to wear it, to, to mimic what Howard Thurman said about Morehouse. That's what our schools do. Um, and, and for so long, Black students were not allowed to go to other institutions. And so the Tuskegee's, the Spelman's, the Morehouse, the Hamptons, um, the Howard Universities, the Alabama States, these schools have always been places that were safe havens um, for students. 
And when you talk about belonging, students have to feel like they are wanted. wanted. And so um, HBCUs, the goal number one is to make students feel that they are wanted and not just here by, by, by chance or circumstance. That is ingredient number one. Uh, and as long as we can continue to do that um, and students feel welcome, um, this place is truly an extension of home. Um, the, the grounds are so sacred. Booker T. Washington is buried about uh, 300 feet from me. Uh, wow. Washington Carver is buried about 325 feet from where I sit right now. So when students walk across and they see how these individuals sleep beneath the soil, they realize that they are truly on hallowed ground. So it gives them a deeper appreciation for the space. And all of the HBCUs have a similar feeling because something historic happened on those campuses, whether the bus boycott beginning on the campus of Alabama State, um, or whether if I get on 85 South and drive to the Atlanta University Center, the fact that Martin King walked across uh, the lawn in 1944 as a 15 year old student, or if I walk across to uh, Morris Brown and I know where Jose Williams studied chemistry there, or when I go to, to other schools, you realize that you are truly in a hallowed space and students appreciate that and, and really take in that moment every single day. So that's the moment into the momentum. Wonderful. Now, you just mentioned the uh, the gentleman for whom you are the now the definitive biographer. Tell our listeners a little bit about the significance of the life of Hosea Williams. So, so Hosea Williams was responsible um, for planning the march from Selma to Montgomery that galvanized the nation around the need for a voting rights bill, particularly after um, uh, Bloody Sunday, which was the anniversary on yesterday, uh, March 7th, 1965. But Jose Williams was also a philanthropist. Um, Jose Williams his charity began in 1971 and has fed more than one million people uh, since that time in, in Atlanta. But what a civil rights stalwart, he started off in Savannah, Georgia, uh, working for the United States Department of Agriculture, um, was a very skillful chemist, even published academic papers a lot of people don't know about. Um, and he thought that he made it because he had a, a white secretary to him. That was a visible sign of him climbing the ladder of upward mobility. Um, and then he realized that other, other people who looked like him did not have the same opportunities. So he joined the NAACP, invented the Night March, and because of him and the NAACP's effort, um, they were the first city south of the Mason-Dixon to desegregate prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So for 50 years, Jose Williams was committed to defying and protesting um, bigotry and racism wherever he found it. So just a fascinating man that I hope that uh, your listeners will uh, will will be willing to learn more about. Well, I I hope they will too, and they can certainly read about him in the biography of yours from the University of South Carolina Press. Um, so, I'm sure we're all getting a feel for how you lead students. Um, I learned about you that uh, earlier in your career you were known as the Dapper Dean. What's that all about? 
Well, it's interesting. I was um, I was a dean at 33 years old, and and I I would normally dress um, like a 30 year old. Um, sometimes like a 25 year old, depending on the Friday, I would wear, you know, Air Jordan tennis shoes or with a polo shirt or a hat to the back. But normally Monday through Thursday, I was always in a suit. And so many of my students did not know how to tie neckties because their fathers were not in the home. And so I learned how to tie a tie at 27 by watching a YouTube video because I didn't have my father. And so when I learned how to finally tie a necktie, I will wear one every day. And so my students said, man, you're always so dapper and you're the dean. Uh, we're just going to call you the dapper dean. And that moniker um, has stuck ever since that time. So that is that is the origin um, of the nickname. And are you still teaching them how to tie a tie? You know what? In my last job, we would have uh, necktie, tie your necktie Tuesdays. And I would bring ties from home and often give them away um, to students who were preparing for job interviews or who just wanted to to look the part of a scholar as their definition kind of guided them. And and so we would do uh, neckties. We would also give away blazers. Uh, Many of our students did not know that uh, your belt is supposed to match your shoes. So we would turn it into a whole wardrobe um, event. And if they dressed as well as you did, um, your listeners can't see you right now. Um, I know they'll do all right when they are going out for job interviews. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm wearing a plaid sports jacket. You'd look well in it too, but uh, <laughs> I think you're doing just fine. Uh, you know, some of us who follow the news, we're we're aware that HBCUs have been finally receiving a fair share of public financial tax support, and some are saying that we're experiencing a renaissance in this country of these 102 institutions. Um, would you conclude our conversation this morning by, you know, often in a podcast, people want to know, well, what what's this, in this case, innovator, what's he going to do next? So would you give us a preview of what you'd like to contribute to the renaissance of the HBCUs, of which you are now a symbol? You know, you mentioned Martin Luther earlier. Um, and you mentioned the word renaissance. Um, I'm going to throw in another word that is tied to that, a reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we are looking for what schools will look like in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, because the same student now is not the same student 20 years ago, and it won't be the same student 25 years from now. So we must do what Jack Welch did with GED. We have to see around the corner. Um, what are those things that we can anticipate that students in kindergarten right now will look for should they desire to go to college? And so what is that experience for them? Um, when I was a little boy, I loved to watch the Jetsons. Yeah. And um, you you would see flying cars. You would see George Jetson Whoa. talking to Mr. Faisley on, uh, on a television screen. He was pretty dapper, too. Yeah, no, I, you, you're right. You're right. And and so the Jetsons, I think, were prophetic for higher education and society overall. And I think we have to have the same Jetsonian approach to how we do business if we want to be prepared for the student in 2045 or in 2050. 
Uh, I'm 40 years old now. I hope that I'll be around. I may not be around, but what I would like to do is start laying the groundwork here at Tuskegee and other HBCUs so that these schools will continue to survive and thrive uh, long after my time or my earthly sojourn has ended. But we have to, again, look across the hill, like Napoleon said, to make sure that we are doing that SWOT analysis every single day. What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats? And that last T, what will be the trends uh, in 2045 and 2050? And that's how I think we can continue to ensure that our students are successful, not just by uh, a grade metric, but also significant, because it is one thing to be successful. It is something else to be significant. And I think that's that's the shift or the paradigm shift that I think we have to we have to follow. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I'm having a mental pleasure here with a fantasy about <laughs> Napoleon exercising and a SWAT exercise. Uh, well, <laughs> I know you've got a conversation with the United States Senator. I hope you're hitting him up for an increased appropriation for um, HBCUs in Alabama or whatever. And uh, uh, I want to thank you for spending a while here in the office hour. And ladies and gentlemen, again, if you could see um, Dr. Rice's office, you can see why students would want to come and visit him. And of course, you're hearing from him. So you can imagine that. Uh, one final thing, suppose somebody wants to follow up with you, Dr. Rice, how would they reach you? Sure. They can find me on um, Instagram at the underscore dapper underscore Dean. Uh, you can find me on Facebook by my my, my real stage name, uh, Rolandus Rice, or they can just go to Tuskegee's website or you can Google me. I'm very accessible um, by phone, by text, via email. And again, it's all about being accessible um, to students, parents, administrators, because we are in the business of people. And, and when you know that you are serving people, uh, then you know that, uh, you know, you're moving in the right direction. That's a wonderful last word. And thank you again for redefining access. And you've given even me a lot to think about. Um, we'll have you again. Best wishes to you, Dr. Rice. Hey, thank you, sir. And, and thank you for having me uh, in the office hours. <laughs> you know where to find me. Indeed. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours with John Gardner. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Gardner Institute, and we wish to thank our guests and the entire team who make this podcast possible.